Well, hey, everybody. It is good to see you guys. I mean, I walked in here and... Um, this is great. For those online who are viewing with us, man, like Brandon said, we're glad you're here and appreciate that our online viewing has kind of tweaked up a considerable percentage over last fall, so that's great. And just for those who are in the room, um, I mean, it is great to see a bunch of you. <clears throat> and I know that we have some folks visiting, and so for many, this is your first Sunday at Calvary. And Walking into any new church environment, no matter where you are spiritually, can always be a little intimidating, especially when everybody's got masks on, which makes it even crazier. Uh, but we're glad you're here. And like Brandon said, if you um, want some more information, we don't stalk you. We're not going to show up at your house with like a fruitcake or anything. You don't have to worry about going home and you're trying to watch something on TV and you'll see me in your window pounding. That will not happen. Uh, we don't want to stalk you, but we do want to be available for you. And so you can grab one of our team on the way out if you have questions or there's that QR code. I'm glad you're here. <clears throat> After this service, we're going to have three folks uh, who are jumping in to be members here. So we're appreciative of that. And we have in the room, the rumor is, the first, or the youngest, newest potential future member to Calvary Church because uh, Brandon has been off, our worship leader has been off for a few weeks because his sweet wife had a baby, and uh, you can welcome the baby. Lennon May is here, um, and so, man, we're glad to have like a little, <clears throat> a little baby in the house. I'll try not to yell, and I don't want to, like, break her fragile, sweet little eardrums. That would be really bad, right? But, hey, welcome. Glad you guys are here. And just a quick housekeeping thing for guys. Um, we've talked about it for a while. But for men, our ladies, we got over 90-plus women who are connecting every week virtually or in person and great stories of what's coming out there. And for years, we've wanted the same sort of thing for men, and we've wanted to just do it in the right timing, and we've wanted to do it in a way that's true to who we are in this present season. So a couple months ago, <clears throat> a while ago, we've gathered together a leadership team to help start work on planning some things for men. And so guys, we're going to officially launch uh, some men's gatherings, some men's events, some men's ministry, whatever you want to call it. And the first kickoff event is going to be Wednesday, March 10th. So we're going to do this Wednesday evenings, and we chose that because that's the time when a good many folks are here dropping kids off, and we already have guys in the building and people in the building who want to leverage that. And so if you're a guy who's newer to Calvary or been around Calvary for a while, we really want to create an environment for us to be able to connect together. And each of the gatherings, they're going to have some different focuses. Sometimes it'll literally be just to build relationships. And when this COVID thing goes away, we'll maybe, you know, catch some minor league ball games together or do some stuff. We're going to have some ways to get to know one another. Uh, second kind of type of <clears throat> thing we'll do when we get together is some evenings, it'll be pressing into God's word or some biblical principles. And we'll just be having conversations about, hey, how does this truth relate to us as men? And the third big focus we'll have for our group together as guys, our gatherings, is to serve. We want to be a church that serves people, and there's a lot of different ways that we do that. But for us guys, we want to be able to meet the needs of people around us, uh, both who come to Calvary or don't. And so the different times we're together, we'll have some different focuses. Sometimes it'll be to just connect. Sometimes it'll be to press into the Bible or biblical truth. And then another time we'll connect to try to serve other people. We'll give you lots of information about that. But if that interests you, again, we'll be sending emails out. Um, but you can jump on that QR code or you can jump on our website and we'll give you information about that. So just excited about what God's doing here. And I look forward to what he will do through uh, his word today. God is sovereign and he knows every single person who's in the room today. He knows every single person will be watching this and he doesn't want to waste this moment. He knows what you're going through and I don't have anything for you, but God does. And so I'm excited to kind of see what he has and, and together hear how what we see in this story can impact our story. So let me pray 
and then we'll jump into it. Father, uh, I'm grateful for you and thank you for the truth that we just sung, affirming uh, that you're above everything and that you're worthy of our worship and that you can be trusted and that you're in control. And thank you for reminding us of those things through song. Father, help us now as we press into your word that we will hear from you what you have for us. Um, <clears throat> you know where we are, God. You know the questions we're asking. Your word doesn't return void. And so thanks for keeping this for us so that today, this Sunday, we can have some truth to hold on to as we walk through our lives. We want to follow you. We want to know you. We want Jesus to be honored. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, a few years ago, more than a few, I mean, I don't <clears throat> remember how many it was, but there's a dude named Rick Warren. He's a pastor out in California, and he wrote a book that church people heard of and even people who weren't church people heard of. It was a book called The Purpose Driven Life. Anybody read The Purpose Driven Life? Okay, 12 of you have a purpose for your life. The rest of you, I guess, just have a life, right? Which is good. No, I'm just kidding. Purpose Driven Life. A lot of people read it. And he, here's how that book began. The very first sentence began with these words, God has a wonderful plan for your life. God has a wonderful plan for your life. And that sentence, and I think part of the reason the book resonated with so many people was because of that sentence. Because whether people believe in God or don't or know what that all is or follow, man, there's all of us kind of want to know this question of what's the plan for our life? Is there a plan for our life? Is there a purpose for our life? Does God have something for us? And that question, that first sentence, teed up that issue in a huge way that resonated with lots of people. And it's really, really easy to read a sentence that says, hey, God's got a wonderful plan for your life. Reading that sentence is easy to do. But then what's much more difficult is sometimes trying to figure out what God's plan for our life is. What, what can be more difficult than sometimes trying to figure out God's plan can be trying to navigate God's plan. When he has us experiencing different things, when he has us walking through different things. Reading a sentence about God's plan is easy. Figuring out God's plan and walking God's plan can sometimes be hard. And maybe those words kind of land right where you are today or where you've been. Have you ever tried to figure out what God's plan is for you? Right? Have you ever tried to figure that out? No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, figure out your plan, figure out God's plan for you. Have you had something happen in your life and you've tried to understand, man, what, what does he have for me? Why does he have me in this moment? Why is part of his plan for me facing this thing? Where is he taking me? <clears throat> is there a purpose? Is there something he has for me? Why is he allowing this thing to happen? What, what's he doing in my life? And sometimes when the circumstances of our life go in certain ways, they can raise all sorts of questions about God's plan or just bring a whole lot of challenges as we navigate God's plan. And it's not just people today in 2021 who are asking questions about God's plan because there's people who thousands of years ago were trying to navigate his plan and understand his plan and trying to process his plan. And we're going to track some more of their story today and we're going to think about how does that relate to our story. If you've not visited with us, or maybe you know, you've checked us out a week or so ago, what we're doing is we're, we're in a series called Narrative, and we're trying to put together the Old Testament. There's all these stories in this Old Testament. There's all these different 
types of literature in the Old Testament. We're trying to understand it. We're trying to put together. And what we're doing is we're walking week by week kind of the major stories, the major events, the major big moments in the Old Testament to weave the big story together. And we're going to continue that and we're going to see some, some things about God's plan. But here's where we've been so far in this story. We started off and we hit this last week, right? We started Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then what we saw was everything was really good, but it got really, really bad. Because we chose to sin. We stepped aside. And in that moment, God didn't go anywhere, but we went. We went away from God. And then God looks down and he wants to start to fix everything. He makes this promise here about a kid and then things get really, a kid who's going to come, a child who one day is going to fix it. And then things continue to get bad. They get worse with Noah. He kind of restarts. And in the past two weeks, we've seen and talked about how God's rescue plan started with one guy, a guy named Abraham. And he made certain promises to Abraham about people, land, blessing. And we tracked that a little bit. And what we've seen in this story so far and in the chapter so far is God's big plan for kind of us, the big plan that's unfolding in the Old Testament. And and here's what we see his plan involves. It involves a child. The part of God's plan to fix everything involves a child. That child's going to be related to Abraham. That child's going to come from the land that Abraham kind of claimed, right? Kind of founded that territory that Abraham was given. There's going to be a child who's related to Abraham, who comes from that land, who's going to bless and offer blessing in some unique way to all people. That's what we've seen so far about God's plan. And the rest of the Old Testament is going to be built upon this and it's going to be unfolding this and there's going to be more details about this child and this plan. And we started to start to see it. We started to start to see it. It's a lot of starting, right? We started to see this last week because last week we learned a little bit about Abraham. We saw some children who were born and this is where we were if you were with us last week. Abraham, the promise was, hey, Abraham, I'm going to give you children. I'm going to give those children some land. I'm going to give blessing to all people. But when the story began... Abraham and his wife, Sarah, man, they were infertile. She was barren. But we, we walked through that yes, last week and we tracked it. And Abraham finally has a child. He has two children. He has Ishmael and he has Isaac. <clears throat> Ishmael and Isaac. And we saw that the promises, the plan is going to kind of track through this side of the family tree. And today we're going to continue to see the plan flow from Abraham to his son. And then we're going to learn a little bit about Abraham's grandsons as we walk the story of Isaac. And so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 25, verse 19, tracking Isaac. Okay, and here's what we read. These are the generations of Isaac. So focusing on that side. Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Arimian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Arimian, to be his wife. And this is, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Now, barren means she can't have kids, means she's infertile. And two kind of generations in, we start to see this really interesting pattern starting to develop of God's plan. That God's plan involves giving children to certain people and working through those. But the people to whom God said, I'm going to give you a baby, they can't have babies in the beginning of the story. He comes to certain people and he says, hey, here's my plan. I'm going to fix everything, but I'm going to do it through giving you a child. But two times now, both through Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca, the people who heard that part of the plan, they're like, bro, that's good, but we can't have no babies. And it's kind of odd the way God seems to be doing that plan because 
seems like there could have been some ways to do it a little bit differently that made a whole lot more sense, that could have not been as challenging, a part of a plan that might not have had those obstacles. Like if I was drafting this whole plan up, wouldn't it have made a whole lot of more sense for God to, to come and make those promises to somebody who already had a gaggle of kids, right? Like me, I'd look around and say, man, that family's got 42 kids. At least one of them kids is going to be okay, so I'm going to make the promise to them. Or why wouldn't have God said to people, hey, couple, I'm going to give you some kids, and those couples, those ladies, already be in a position from the beginning of the story to have a child. Instead, what God's plan involves are these obstacles and these challenges that, that seem unnecessary, that don't seem to make the most sense. It could have been done differently. It could have been done easier. And, and here's what kind of bubbles up the first observation about that, that God's plan may not always make sense to us. In this story, telling a couple, I'm going to work through you and your kids, when that couple doesn't even have kids, it doesn't seem when they could have, when it could have been different. That doesn't seem to make the most sense in the beginning. And sometimes in my story and sometimes in your story, God's plan may not always make sense. Like the two ladies in the story, like Sarah and Rebecca, who had these challenges and these hurdles and this sadness about knowing that a kid was part of their plan, but yet they don't have a kid and they have to overcome that. Sometimes my story and sometimes your story as we walk God's plan, it's going to have some obstacles. It's going to have some moments <clears throat> that don't make a whole lot of sense. But in the moments as we're navigating God's plan that doesn't make sense, there's still two things for you and for me to hold on to. Still two truths that when none of it seems to make sense, we've got to cling to. And, and here's the first truth to cling to in moments when God's plan for you doesn't appear to make sense from your perspective is this. God's plan, because we know the character of God, God's plan is what is ultimately best. God's plan is what is ultimately best. Now notice I didn't say easiest. Notice I didn't say smoothest. But ultimately, God's plan is what is ultimately best. There was a season for my wife and me when our kids were toddlers and I mean it seemed like <clears throat> man, our kids every week it seemed one of them was running into some coffee table somewhere right we'd go to a grandparents house kid would be like ah clunk we're in the car we went on vacation to Hilton Head we're just settling in and one of our little kids is like ah clunk call. right and there was this one time when one of my kids smacked into a coffee table or a door or something and it, it, I mean it was like it was like trauma right blood fly uh. so we had to go to the emergency room we had to go to pediatric emergency room and <clears throat> this particular child like they were still, still kind of a toddler elementary toddlerish but they did not like doctors I mean, when it was time to like go to the pediatrician, they'd be the child who's like trying to break the windows in the car to escape doctor shots were not their thing and part of what the doctors had to do in the pediatric emergency room is, I mean, this thing was significantly open, so they had to stitch it up. And this little toddler elementary child of mine, th this was not what they wanted to have happen. 
And so my, my, it was like DEFCOM 42 for my kid. I mean, this child was, it, it was like thrashing. Scre- this is not pastoral exaggeration. This is true life. Thrashing, screaming. I mean, chaos. I mean, it's like the, a demon has inhabited my child. What's going on? And so what the doctors are like, they're like, bro, we, we, can't, we can't take care of your kid this way. We got to do something so that they can be restrained because we're not going to let put stitches in. So you know what they did? I had this little head holder thing that they put my child in. And then the doctor looked to me and one of the nurses and like, okay, now you guys are going to have to hold the child down. And so my little toddler at elementary school age child is there trying to thrash with their head like this. And now on one side is a nurse and the other side is me holding them down, restraining them. And my child had these eyes that were looking at me. And you could read the emotion that was coming through of like, Dad, what are you doing? Like, you're, you're holding me down when this is not what I want. You're holding me here when all I want to do is get out. This dude with his scrub shirt is coming at me with this thing that's not going to feel good. And you're not helping me. You're keeping me here. And they were right. But do you know why the doctors and the nurses and me, do you know why we were holding that child down? Because what we knew is what was best for that child is they got to get the stitches. Because if they don't get the stitches, that's not going to be good for them. And we had them in a moment where they didn't understand what I was doing and they didn't like what I was doing. But what I knew as their dad who loved them is this is what I got to do. Now, we got to be really careful here. I've read a lot of books. I've been to seminary. I have wrestled through numerous times from other, all sorts of angles this question of pain. And this question of, does God cause every pain in our life? God certainly allows every pain in our life. And so if he allows it, it's the same as causing it. And there's all sorts of issues there, right? And, and here's what I do know, right? I do know that sometimes we face pain in this world simply because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes a lot of what you and I face <clears throat> occurs because of Genesis 3 and because things are broken and we experience pain and we experience suffering and we experience loss and people hurt us, right? And I'm not trying to say that every time you get that, that is something directly God is causing. Again, it's two sides we could flip, but, he, but here is what I am saying sometimes, that sometimes pain in our lives is part of God's plan for our lives. Sometimes pain in our lives is part of God's plan for our lives. And in those moments, what we need to try to grasp onto when none of it makes sense is if God is who he says he is and he loves us the way he says he loves us, then I'm going to trust that his plan is ultimately best. And hand in hand with that is the second thing to cling to when God's plan doesn't always make sense to us is this, that God is still in control. God is still absolutely in control. Isaac and his wife Rebecca faced part of this plan that was hard, that was challenging, that didn't make sense. And what did Isaac do, right? So his wife can't have a baby. This baby's promise, part of God's plan. What does Isaac do? Well, we see what he does. You know what he does? He prays. He prays. 
Chapter 25, verse 21, we see this. We've already read it, right? So his wife is barren, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And then we continued, right? And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Isaac's in this moment where the plan doesn't make sense, and he prays, God, help me with what's going on. I'm coming to you. I'm depending on you. Then God responds, and there's babies, right? There's twins, spoiler alerts. But then we read something really interesting about this. Verse 22, we read what's happening now to the mother-to-be. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Here's the deal. This is a difficult pregnancy for Rebecca. There is pain for her. There's discomfort. These words about struggling in some of the Hebrew there, it shows like, man, this is causing her physical distress, emotional distress. There's health potential issues. And she is having a hard, hard time with this. She's like, God, okay, this is part of your plan, but this isn't easy. There's challenges, and in fact, she takes it one step further, and she said, if it is thus, in other words, if this is so hard, if this is so challenging, look at what she says, why is this happening to me? God, you told me your plan. I just wanted to have a little baby, and now as I'm walking your, first of all, I couldn't figure it out, because now I'm walking your plan. And there is pain, and there is discomfort, and there are challenges. And if this is what your plan's like, I love what she's honest. She's raw. She says, why is this happening to me? But you know what she does in the moment when the plan doesn't make sense? Do you know what she does when she's facing things, trying to navigate God's plan? She does what her husband did. And she prayed. And we see that in verse 22. And she says this, right? The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. God, I'm going to come back to you. And I'm going to get with you. And I, don't, I ain't got nowhere else to go. And I'm going to depend on you. And I need you to help me get through this. Or I just need you to help me figure this out. Here's the second observation. God's plan should prompt our faith, and move us to prayer. Does that mean that that's what happens the first day we're navigating hard parts of God's plan? No, that's ridiculous. But it means at some point in that process, the pain and the challenges and the unknowns that we're going through, at some point, one day, someday, have to then have a catalyst to propel us like, okay, I'm going to go back to what I know about God and, and who he is And it's going to prompt my faith and cause me to go to him in prayer. When we don't understand the plan, or when we don't like the plan, when we don't know how to navigate the plan, in those moments we have a choice. We can either run further. We're we're going to move in some direction in relation to God. And we can either move further from God, or we can move closer to God. And at some point, the challenge, the opportunity is we move closer to God. We move to more deeply depend upon God. And in our pain and in the moments when the plan doesn't make sense, our ability to depend and draw deeper, sometimes we don't even have that. And so you know what we do in that day? We move to God and we say, God, to be honest, I'm not really thrilled with what you're doing here. 
but I want to be able to depend on you. I desire to depend on you, and I need you to help me and enable me to depend upon you. Are you facing challenges? And let me say this, some of you in God's plan, and some of you who are in that raw moment, right, the raw moment of processing, and sometimes that means it's a week, and sometimes it's been a year, okay? If you're in that raw moment of processing pain, this question, uh, this doesn't apply to you, okay? But, but for those of us who you're, you're, you know, it's not like, it's not deep pain, it's not death, it's not horrible sickness, it's not all sorts of chaos, but there's something that you've been wrestling with for months or for weeks, like I don't want to move, I don't want to stay, I don't want to start, I don't want to stop. Here's the question. If you're facing challenges and understanding God's plan, what have you spent more time doing the past month? Have you spent more time complaining about it? Or have you spent more time praying about it. Well, well, these guys <clears throat> prayed about it. And so she goes to God and she prays, help me with this. In response to her asking for help navigating the plan, God says something to her. God responds, which shows us another reality about God's plan. Here's what God says in response to the mom-to-be's prayer in verse 23. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. And then here's the line that like this would have grabbed her, right? The other would have been interesting. Like, oh, you got two babies. They're going to grow up to be leaders. Those two countries someday, one day won't like each other. And she's like, but then this is the line that would have been like, whoa, because this is what that next line said. And the older shall serve the younger. The older shall serve the younger. Now this, that line, that statement is totally countercultural. Because in that culture, do you know what the most important child is? The most important child in that culture was the older, the firstborn, right? All the younger children are the ones who served the firstborn male. Have you guys ever watched The Crown? You ever kept up with the royal family? Gets a little confusing. But man, right, that, that, that bloodline passes to the firstborn son who's going to become the future king. In this culture, it does the same way. The older child in the culture is the one who gets the privilege, is the one who gets the rights, is the one who gets the inheritance. The older child actually gets double of all the inheritance that the younger would get. In this story, the promises that God made to Abraham, the blessings that he said, man, the older one who would have gotten that. But here what God's doing is he's saying, okay, I know the way that normally goes in your culture. I know the way that normally goes in your world. But guess what? My plan, I'm flipping it. Because in my plan, it's not going to be about the older who gets all the privileges and all the rights and all the heirship. It's about the younger. Totally counter-cultural. Not the way things were done. But what God's doing here is he reveals his plan, is he's revealing this other truth about his plan, that God's plan often goes contrary to culture's norms. God's plan often goes contrary to culture's norms, the values in our culture and God's values in his kingdom are oftentimes very, very different. And sometimes what happens for me and sometimes what happens for you and sometimes what happens for us, right, as we pull this observation that God's plan runs contrary to culture's norms, throw that up there real quick, that point, please. 
God's plan often runs culture, culture's norms. You know what sometimes happens? Sometimes happens this. You and I, we buy into this, culture's norms, culture's values. We prioritize this. We hold on to this. And that makes us not want to do this. Maybe you and I this morning, we have trouble following God's plan in some way because we prioritized culture's values. Maybe we have a desire for comfort. For comfort. For stuff. To think we can insulate ourselves from any harm. And we've bought into this lie that if we have a couple more zeros in our bank account, we're going to achieve that. And it's keeping some of us, or it has kept some of us, or it will keep some of us <clears throat> from following God and giving up something that he wants us to give up. We're chasing the value of comfort and we're unwilling to let go of that in order to let go of something that God is calling us to let go of. Maybe what you and I have bought into is this value in our culture of control, that you got to be the one in control. You got to be the one in power. You got to be the one that it's all about. It's all about making everybody else value you, right? And you're in control, and that is keeping you or keeping me from gently and fully and humbly caring about other people around us and serving them and thinking of them and we're not doing that what God wants in this kingdom because we're so busy chasing control maybe you want acceptance you just yearn for acceptance and you're chasing things and values of our culture to be accepted and you're missing out on opportunities for holiness which is part of God's plan for you. Maybe you've bought into the cultural lie that your value comes from what other people think of you. That your worth comes from what other people think of you. And so you spend your time trying to get people to like you and value you. And you're, you're so focused on that that you ignore what part of God's plan is. And God's plan, you know what? Your value comes not from what other people think of you, but from what he thinks of you. And from resting and who you are in him. God inverts things, and in God's plan is many times contrary to culture's plans and norms. But are some of you missing out on God's plan because you're elevating culture's plan and culture's value for you? And so God tells Isaac and Rebecca, hey, it's going to be different than the way around you. This plan for your life and your story and my continuing plan of salvation, redemption, contrary to culture around you. And so then what happens? Well, then what happens is God does what he does. The babies are born. We see this in verse 24 through 26. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her room, womb, in her room, whatever there were twins in her womb the first one came out red all his body like a hairy cloak so they called his name Esau first baby out Esau then next dude afterward his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel so that his name was called Jacob Isaac was six years old when she bore them man God bless Isaac 
I hope he has like lots of protein shakes because man, I've had four kids and I would not want to have a baby at 60 years old. I do not want that to be part of God's plan for my life, but that's okay. It's another story, right? The babies are born. Esau first. Old boy Esau, in his culture, he's the one who's supposed to get everything, have the privileges, have the rights, have the inheritance. But we know that Jacob's going to be the one who's going to get all that, right? And here's what's really important. These were babies in the womb a few moments ago. They have popped out. They have been born for 27 seconds. Both of them have cried, and both of them need a new diaper. Neither one of them has necessarily done anything good or bad to try to discern who should get what. Right? This is really, really important. It's not like Jacob pops out and all of a sudden helps some old lady across the road in front of the hospital as a one-second-old one infant. The babies ain't done nothing good or bad to have it fall where it falls. But what God's plan was is Esau firstborn, you're not getting it. Jacob secondborn, you're getting it. And here's what's so odd about that. You look at how the story plays out, and we're not going to do it, but you kind of look, and Esau has some faith moments, but there's no huge stumble. But Jacob, the guy that gets everything throughout the story, it's not only that little baby Jacob didn't do anything good to try to earn this. The story is that, that grown-up Jacob does a whole lot of things bad. Jacob is a man of faith. Jacob's in the Bible. God works through Jacob. But you know what else? Jacob is a con man. Jacob is a deceiving, manipulative, shyster, and liar. And worse than any of that, Jacob's like the biggest mama's boy you ever saw. Jacob's mama's dressing him every day like, Jacob, let me floss your teeth for you, okay? Esau is this guy who has some moments where his faith isn't good, but dude seems like a good, solid, blue-collar worker who hasn't really done anything wrong. Jacob, the guy who gets it, it's like he doesn't deserve it because he's done everything wrong. Not everything. A lot of things wrong throughout the story. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair that a guy who doesn't seem to deserve it gets it. And maybe the guy who would have deserved it didn't get it. Here's the fourth observation about God's plan. You know what? The reality is God's plan doesn't always seem fair. It doesn't. And probably I could make that a little tighter. It's not that it doesn't always appear fair. God's plan probably isn't always fair. People who do really bad things sometimes are the people who benefit. And people who try to do the right things sometimes don't. If, if you tell a lie, if you lie, it's all sorts of people in our world who lie and get ahead every day. And the people who try to tell the truth don't get ahead. And there's going to be moments when God's plan for your life don't appear fair. But just because God's plan doesn't necessarily appear fair to us doesn't preclude us, doesn't stop us from getting to a point of saying, God, it doesn't seem fair. I'm comparing my story to their story. I don't think they deserve that. I don't think I deserve the I think I deserve better. It doesn't seem fair, God. But yet, I will willingly submit to you, and I'll trust you. 
Just because it doesn't seem fair and just because it isn't fair doesn't and shouldn't eventually stop us from getting to the point of saying, I will trust you. See, and we think about fairness. We think about this correlation between what we get and linked with what we've done. We think fairness is okay. We've done certain things, so we get certain things. But here's the deal. None of this book is fair. It's not. It is not fair. It is not a story of people getting what they are entitled and they deserve to get. Right? Later on, Paul looks back at this deal about, Isaac, about Jacob and Esau. And he says this in Romans 9. I'll start in verse 10. He says this in Romans 9. And not only so, right? he's talking about the way that the whole eventual plan of salvation, the plan of rescue plays itself out. He's looking at this child who's eventually come who's Jesus and what Jesus has offered. And he says this as he looks back to the story we just read. And not only so, but also verse 10 of chapter 9 of Romans. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. What they're saying is it didn't have anything to do with who was better, who was good. God's ultimate plan of salvation, he's saying, doesn't have anything to do with works. It doesn't have anything to do, right, that whether you've done good or bad, what the reality is, is this, that God's plan of salvation is driven by his sovereign grace, not by our worthiness or merit. The, the whole story, right, creation, we fell, what Jesus offers, we, God didn't move anywhere. We moved, And what Jesus offers to bring us back to God, what's offered in having us restored to the person who loves us most, what's part of the story of us having the ability to have our sins forgiven, what's part of the story of having us be able to be righteous and approved and accepted before God is not fair because it has nothing to do with what we've done and having us get what we deserve, in fact, is just the opposite. It's a story of despite what we've done, we get what we don't deserve. Despite what we've done, we get what we don't deserve. And we get the hope of being forgiven by God. Despite what, we've, what would be fair, you know, what would be fair is if we do something wrong, we're punished for it. That seems fair. But man, what Jesus offers to us isn't fair because what Jesus offers is, you've done it, but I don't want to punish you for it. The reason we have the opportunity to be restored to God, the reason we have the opportunity to be forgiven of our sins has absolutely nothing of us being worthy or entitled to that. It has absolutely nothing to us doing good things to deserve that. It's a story of us getting what we don't deserve. Because Jesus, you want to know about not fair? Do you know what's not fair? What's not fair is that Jesus, who did nothing wrong, was punished for all of my wrong so that I wouldn't have to be punished. That's not fair. But that's the rescue plan. 
so that we could be forgiven even when we don't deserve it. It's all because of grace. It's all because of mercy. It's all because God chooses to give to us everything that we don't deserve. And what does that have to do with us? Well, it has to do with us in a few different camps. If you don't understand the story of Jesus, the story is not you work harder and you do better to one day make God love you and you try to do more good than bad. That's not the story because you can never do enough good. The story is Jesus stood in your place, the most unfair thing that happened and was punished for you and because of you so that you won't have to be punished, so that you can be forgiven and so that no matter how low you've fallen, you can be pulled up to the relationship with God who adores you by his mercy and by his grace. If you're not part of that story, that's the truth. That's the hope. That's what Christians believe. And that's what I want to make sure you understand. And if you are a Christian, here's, I don't deserve it. And you don't deserve it. You don't. And I think what sometimes happens, you know what this should do for some Christians? This should humble us. Because I think some people have been Christians for a while and they've worked hard to clean their lives up. And then they stand in this place of this self-righteousness. We're like, oh, look how good I am. Look how I clean myself up. Well, God is lucky that I have a relationship with him. You'll never say it like that. But what you will do is look at somebody else who's making choices and you'll say to yourself, man, I'm, I'm glad I'm not like them. God, aren't you glad that I am the way? Man, I deserve to be. And for some of us, maybe this should humble us. Because we begin a little arrogant. We think that our standing with God is because of who we are and what we've done and has caused us to look down in judgment on other people. We become self-righteous and prideful and maybe God wants to humble you of that today. Or what maybe God wants to do is to tell you, stop worrying. Because what some of us do, we read through our Bible in a year. You know why we read through our Bible in a year? Because we, some, we won't say it like this, but deep down inside we think to ourselves, yeah, 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 I might have been saved because of Jesus, but boy, the pressure's on me now to keep it. Right? It's like, it's like my, my salvation is like a salamander that's going to escape from the box if I don't keep it. And so we read our Bible because we're afraid if we don't do enough good things, we're some, look, you, if you didn't earn it to begin with, you don't have to earn it to keep it. But some of us have convinced ourselves that our right standing with God depends on how well we live our lives and how many good things we still do for God. And you've put all this pressure on yourself. We respond in obedience to God because we understand we don't deserve it. And that compels us when we think about how unfair it was but how gracious of Jesus, that thought compels us to want to obey and love him. But we don't love and obey to try to earn and keep something that we could never earn to begin with. Some of us maybe need to understand or think about, did, have you ever really understood what the Bible is offering to you in terms of how to get into a relationship with Jesus? Because you've made it some caricature of the evangelical Christian you see on TV that you don't like, and you think that's what Jesus is, and it's not. And what Jesus is is a substitute who died for you. And some of us who believed that story, have you allowed yourself to become self-righteous? Have you allowed yourselves to look down on other people? Have you allowed yourselves to be 
feel this pressure that you have to continue it. And today is the day for you to maybe repent or just crumble into grace even more deeply. So next week, we're going to continue to walk through the family tree, right? We're going to study the the story of a guy named Joseph. Uh, We're going to go through pretty quickly, but lots of ups and downs in that story. We'll be there next week, but this week, as I ask the worship team to come up and we wind down, here's kind of just the points we've seen about God's plan. And if you're in a place where you're wrestling with God's plan, what I challenge you to do is to maybe take one of these points and this point is just the thing that you keep wrestling through this week. You just keep it bouncing around in your mind. One of these realities about God's plan, and the first we've seen is this, God's plan may not always make sense to us. But God's plan should prompt our faith and move us to prayer. God's plan often goes contrary to culture's norms. God's plan may not always be fair. But the good news that God's ultimate plan of salvation is driven by his sovereign grace, not by your worthiness or merit. And here's what I'd like to say. If you're online, and this whole reality about how you get right with God and how you become forgiven is something that's resonated, man, jump on your mail right now and send an email to one of our pastors or elders, and we'd love to walk with you. And if you're in the room this morning, and you've bought into a fable of what Christianity is, and you've, in that fable, overlooked the amazing story of undeserved forgiveness that is open to you, and you want to know more about that, then there's Brandon, there's me, our executive pastor, Dan. You can grab some of the people who've been leading worship or somebody who greeted you this morning, and we'd love to talk to you more about that, okay? Um, God does have a great story for your life, a great plan for your life, and it may not always be easy. And next week, we're going to continue to walk and see his plan as it unfolds the Old Testament. Let me pray. Father, thank you um, that we can trust you. And I pray that today, people who are in a challenging moment in walking the plan you have for them uh, might feel a great sense of your encouragement and presence. And for those of us who feel a gap of your silence, will you in absolute grace, Father, reveal yourself and Make yourself feel present to us. Will you enable us to want to follow your plan? Will you give us the strength to depend on you in the moments when your plan is hard? And may we live in such a way that we bring you glory. And we thank you. Amen.